Hello, and welcome to Fireside. Before we begin today, I just want to say that this particular episode was recorded during the coronavirus pandemic before we were able to re-establish ourselves with good video and audio equipment. I'd like to thank Amy for bearing with us during this and to you, the audience. I appreciate the quality may not be what you're used to with this series, but hopefully you will still enjoy Amy Radin's talk. Hello and welcome to S'mores by Fireside. As always, you can learn more about Fireside Group at meetfireside.com. But for now, let me introduce you to Amy Raiden. Delighted to have Amy joining us. Her and I actually met because we're both on the advisory panel for a really interesting technology company called Pebble Post. You haven't checked them out. They do direct mail in a programmatic way, which is pretty compelling. Amy, will you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. And first of all, thanks for inviting me, Dax. Great to be here. So, uh, yeah, so Dax and I met at the beginning of my second career, uh, which is where I am now. Um, so I guess I'll start there. I'm, I'm currently operate as an independent executive. I've published an award-winning book called The Changemaker's Playbook, How to Seek, Seed, and Scale Innovation in Any Company. I'm sure we'll talk about that a little later. I advise several uh, startup companies on their growth strategies and I'm doing um, keynote speaking and different kinds of consulting projects. Prior to uh, this new life I'm in, I had a long career in the corporate world, working for big brands like American Express, Citi, E-Trade, AXA, where I held executive positions in marketing, digital transformation, and innovation. So happy to be here to share, share what I know with your audience. It has been interesting. So I think what I've been able to introduce Amy to a little bit since we met is more of the kind of startup world and way of thinking. And likewise, Amy's been able to teach me a lot more about the corporate way of thinking. Um, interestingly, innovation is a constant battle between the disruptive startups and the corporate world. From your experience of the two career lives now, Amy, what would you see as the biggest differences when it comes to innovation between the two? You know, it's funny, people like to think about the differences, but I, I like to talk about what they can learn from each other. So I guess there are some of the differences. I think that, um, that startups and companies, other companies that don't have some of the advantages of big companies, and there are, there are advantages, can learn a lot about process, which you need to scale, can learn about the marketing discipline, um, which marketing done well is incredibly important to attracting and retaining customers, things like that. Big companies, I think, can learn a lot from from startups and and you know smaller businesses about listening to their customers, about speed, just moving faster, and about being scrappier about their resources. Mm. That makes sense. I think um, I remember you telling me a story about when you got to one of those uh, corporate jobs and they'd been spending a lot of money on complex research. And I think sometimes people in our audience who are smaller business owners sometimes feel they can't compete against the big corporates who have those enormous budgets to do different types of research. I remember you telling me there was a case that were actually you got rid of a lot of those budgets and you just did things in a way that I think probably would be more familiar to small business owners. Yeah, it was definitely, uh, we had to be a lot scrappier and it turned out to be much more effective. So the story was when I first started pursuing innovation projects at, in my role at City, which was something I did because my boss called me to his office one day and said, uh, well, you have to make us more innovative because we need to be innovative and we're not innovative. And I said, you know, okay, boss. And of course, he didn't give me any additional budget. Right. So we had to figure it out. And 
you know, in the old world, the sort of orthodoxy around how do you figure things out is you go off and you do six or eight focus groups, which cost $10,000 a piece. And then you field a quantitative research study, which is another couple of hundred thousand dollars. And so before you know it, you've spent maybe two or $300,000 just to get some basic information from potential buyers of a new product or service. And we didn't have those kinds of budgets. And so what we ended up doing was just going out and, and doing you know, what I call man on the street or person on the street interviews, talking to people who we thought were likely to be in our core segment for different concepts we were exploring. And what we really saw was that through well-constructed interviews where we really forced ourselves to listen, and that's important, you could get a ton of insight. And actually, by removing the research people from being kind of the middle people between you and the customer, you have the opportunity to even listen better. And really, that's what great founders do. Founders at startups are out, and Dax, you know this better than I from your own experience, Founders at startups that succeed are out there talking to their customers in their customers' workplaces or homes, you know, in their environments and, and really listening to what they have to say. I think there's a, a growing trend where a lot of successful startup founders come from the product side of things. And I wonder if that's the reason, right? Because I think to be a successful leader within a product division, then you really have to be understanding the customer better than anyone else in the business because really you're the, you're the representative of the, of the customer voice in, internally. Sure. And that's why in my book, I start, the, the very first chapter of my book is discovery and it's all about listening. So innovation doesn't start with, you know, you may have a great idea. It doesn't start with, let me go build it. It starts with, let me start immediately listening and observing, because you listen with your eyes, not just with your ears. Um, behavior is really important. Let me really start listening and iteratively create my product with my customer. Otherwise, you can fall into the trap that you know too many founders fall into, you know, building the perfect product for them and their friends without really understanding is there sort of a scale audience of people who want to pay for it. Right. Yeah. A great solution waiting for a problem. I think it is another important point, though, that you talk about listening. I think big companies and small company founders, I think, often make the mistake of they had that seed of a wonderful idea um, and they want to, they're determined to stick with it no matter what. And I think sometimes people can listen, but not necessarily understand. And there, if you look at a lot of the businesses, we all know that are high street brands, of course, they started off doing something different to what they do today. And that's because they listened and they evolved to that, uh, to that audience. I used two examples that you gave me a couple of years ago about questions you always like to ask customers in, in those uh, interviews. Do you remember those? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll share first one question I really dislike. I think, and it, it, it be careful about asking people, what would you do kinds of questions? So would you buy this product or would you come to this event? Or would you, because most people don't really know what they would do. And particularly in a one-to-one or small group situation, people don't want to hurt your feelings. Like mm. They wouldn't do it. So it's hard for people to tell you like your idea is terrible. Be careful about those kinds of questions 
the kinds of questions I love are when you, again, go into people's own environments, so their home, their office, wherever they are, because they'll be more comfortable, and get them to take you back to tell you stories about things that, you know, tell me about a time when, and then fill in the blank with a situation that might be relevant to the issue you're exploring. So tell me about a time you went to the grocery store and you tried to buy X, you know, if you're in the food business. So, and by getting people to bring the story to life, you actually get the facts of what happened. The other technique I like is sort of a projective technique where you imagine your product or concept or a person and you say to whoever it is you're speaking to, well, imagine my product were a person who you met on the street or met at a party or met at, you know, fill in the blank with the relevant environment for you. Um, tell me what they'd be like. And I'll tell you, years ago, I was involved in some credit card research and we wanted to find out how customers perceived our product versus competitor products and other products in our portfolio. And they, so we asked them to imagine they were at a party and all these different cards were at the party as people. And people described our product as the person who was cleaning up at the party. So that tells you a lot about how people felt about the product in terms of its positioning in the market and relative to competition. And you would never get that kind of information in a straight question. You know, tell me how you would describe this product. You just get a whole different set of much less deep answers. So, so what did you take from that? Somebody said, we see your potential credit card product. Was it an actual credit card product at that time? Or it was just it was one? product that was out in the market. And, and we said, wow, because we thought of this as sort of a more, of a product oriented to a more upscale customer. Right. And certainly if they saw the product as the person who was cleaning up at the party, we either had to re- think our positioning in terms of, you know, who's the target segment we're going after, or we had to really go back and elevate and understand why is it that people are thinking about that? What is it in our customer experience, in the way the product looks, in the way we're marketing it? What is it about it that's causing people to feel that way and find ways to elevate the positioning so that they at least saw the, saw the product as a guest at the party um, right. not the host. Right. You are. Okay. Okay. So you went in thinking, oh, we want to be at least guest, maybe the Gatsby host. And, and in reality, people are saying we're the janitor. Right. And so that is tremendous feedback. It's very actionable. And it's really just a simple question. I think, you know, to my point before about market research professionals being middle people. Yeah. The downside is there is no substitute for listening directly to your customer, right? And things could get filtered even by the best, most objective research person. The positive is they really sort of keep you honest. And so we all suffer from this issue that the industry refers to as confirmation bias, which is we all know a lot. We bring our life experiences to our work and we have biases, uh, we all do. And so being a truly objective listener and shutting down our confirmation bias is hard. And so that's why I really like to think about active listening versus listening for the answer you want to hear. And also why observing people's behavior 
and asking them to tell you stories about past experience are all techniques that you can use to stay on the path of really listening and not filtering to your detriment. I wonder then, you know, there's the old expression, you can't truly understand a, a topic unless you can argue for both sides. I wonder if, I wonder if that's how our audience of this could help validate for themselves that they're not just getting an answer that they were looking for by saying, you know, maybe we haven't talked to enough people or maybe we haven't asked the right questions if we haven't found people who argument, argue vehemently against our, our product or our idea. I mean, I think that's another technique that could work. It's not one that I've used often. I mean, I think, you know, there's some principles to getting good qualitative insight on your own. I mean, number one, really think through who is your target audience. So, and, and not just their, you know, their demographics, obviously, but getting beyond demographics to really understanding what do the people I want to serve really need and how am I trying to help them? And then, then start to think about who are those people. So a lot of, we have a tendency to stop short on just demographics. You know, I want people of a certain age. I want men or women. I want people from a certain cultural background and or a certain income level. And those are all fine and can be useful, but they can really be too narrow. So what I encourage people to do is think about what's the problem I'm trying to solve and who has that problem. So I'm looking for people who are all trying to do X. No, they're trying to make some aspect of their business or their life more efficient, or they're trying to be better about saving money, or they're trying to redecorate their home on their own. Now, these are just examples that I'm throwing out off the top of my head, but think about the problem that you're trying to solve and then say, okay, who has this problem? Who do I think may have this problem? And define your segment that way. So demographics may play a role, but they won't by themselves, they will give you a, a self-limiting definition of the market. Then once you have that thought through, you, you seek out some of those people and try to be objective about, you know, arrange, you know, good to include friends and family, but don't limit yourself to those people. Cause again, they'll have the hardest people, they'll be, they'll have the hardest time telling your idea sticks. So try to go for a range. And then think about these questions, get them to tell you stories about a time when, some projection, if you met my idea or product, what would they be like as a person based on your understanding? Why wouldn't I think that Dax's point about arguing both sides? So you have to sort of try different things and be a good prober. Part of being a good listener is probing. So when someone may answer a question, rather than going on to the next question, it's so great to ask, well, wow, that's interesting. Tell me more about that. Like, what made you say that? You know, and then what happened? So two or three questions where you keep sort of peeling the onion can be much more productive than let me just shoot through these 10 questions. So I, I think that probing is also a great way of demonstrating listening. And when people see that you're listening to them, they want to tell you more. Because we all want to be listened to. It's a human need. As, um, is it Don Miller who wrote Story Brand? As he said, everyone wakes up in the morning wanting to be the hero, right? So if they, can, if they feel like they've got a receptive audience and they're being helpful, I, I understand that. People would be more willing to continue. 
Yeah, and people like to help. I mean, the first time I did in-home research was when I was at E-Trade and we went into people's homes, you know, about a year after the financial crisis started to talk to people about their retirements. And I remember telling, you know, some of the people inside the company weren't used to this kind of research. They thought it was like really creepy. And it's like, well, why would anybody let you into their home? Well, aside, it, and we did pay them a small stipend, but it wasn't just the stipend. Is that people felt important. You know, we were this brand, we wanted to come to their home and talk about them, you know, and get their opinion. Um, we were giving them an opportunity to be heard on an issue that was very, very critical to them at that point in their lives. I'm curious, what did that look like? Did you go in on your own? Did you go in with a couple of colleagues? Did you record it? We recorded, and, and in those cases, we had a professional facilitator. I don't know that you always need that. You know, the thing is, nowadays, there are so much free tools and free content online about how to do stuff. You know, I work independently now, and I, but I've worked in companies that had vast resources for the kinds of work that I did. And, but now I don't have those resources. And there's a limit to what I can do on my own. You know, I can't call the finance department or the marketing department or the technology department. I'm me. I, my strategy is sustain and care for a network of people who share my values and interests. And I will reach out to people. In fact, I've reached out to you, Jax, many times. And you know that, you know, I'll be stuck on something. I'm like, well, how do I do this? And I'm often on Google, mm-hmm. how, you know, how to. And I belong to peer groups. So I think one of the keys to being a little more DIY and accomplishing great marketing without having a full-service agency and a full-service market research person is just think about who's in your network and think about are there peer groups that you can be part of with whom to whom you can bring expertise and assets and of people who are willing to share with you as well. And that's a great way to learn on the fly how to mm-hmm. do some of these things. Mm-hmm. Another, another great question I remember you teaching me to ask in these circumstances was around um, how somebody ultimately would describe the product to their friends and family. And I've used that one quite a lot because I certainly find it really helps you narrow down your copy, right? You might describe it as a a course, for instance, but somebody else might describe it as a tool or a, or a research kit or a book. Terrible example, you get the idea. Actually asking them the words they would use, I, I find is very helpful in so many circumstances. I think it's really important. You know, I go to, um, I'm on a lot of startup websites because of my activities in Angel Investor and a lot of these companies, their homepages, the claims are interchangeable. Right. Everybody is the most convenient, the most efficient, the most AI driven. And those are empty words. And by really, that's something, a huge benefit from listening and why if you can record or take notes, you know, whatever you can do, like when you get to the actual specific words, that's how you can construct a point of difference. You're really playing back to people the words that they use. A friend of mine gave me a great piece of advice a few months ago, I'm, I was working on my bio because I, I always have to send my bio out for speaking engagements and advisory assignments. And I asked this, this friend of mine, like, well, how do you think it looks? And he said, you know, Amy, you should put it into one of those text to voice machines and listen to it out loud. Mm. 
And that will give you a whole different impression of how it sounds. And again, there are free text-to-voice machines online. I, I think it's a great way to evaluate your copy is just transcribe it into one of these tools and listen to it. And you'll quickly know if you're just talking sort of jargon and gobbledygook, or if you're actually speaking in human language mm-hmm. that, that reflects who you really are and why you're different and better. That's fascinating. That's a really interesting tip. And I think actually, so people know on the audience, um, I think you can do that with your iPhone through the accessibility settings as well, where you can have it read out any, uh, any text for you. That is interesting. Okay, so there was another question specifically I wanted to dig on. But, but before that, you told me, so I think was it uh, City when right at the beginning of the internet? And given a lot of our audience are trying to innovate in their own areas and they know it's not easy and not hard, it's a little off topic, but I just love the story about you trying to, uh, to innovate with credit cards on, online at the beginning of the web. Will you share it? Yeah, there are a lot of those stories, so I'm not sure which one you're talking about. But I will tell you, when I, when I first arrived at, at City, and it, an incredible company with incredibly talented people, I went around and, and met with all my colleagues. I had like 12 colleagues and trying to understand, because, you know, you come in at a senior level, it's, it's hard to ferret out what's really going on because you're seniors, everybody thinks, you know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And went around and had a one-to-one with each person to sort of understand where did they stand on digital. And this was back in 2000 and banks, you know, there was no such thing as an iPhone or mobile banking and websites for banks were just coming into their own and starting to have more robust capabilities. I'd say of, of the group, a third of them were really happy I was there. said, thank God somebody is taking care of this. The internet is going to be important to our business. A third of them were not so sure, uh, but were open. And a third of them were sort of, well, why are you here? This is secondary to us. And we spent a lot of time, uh, my team and I, during the first couple of years, just building the proof points to help people understand the connection between the digital customer experience and the success and health of the business. And we proved those time and time again, but it took a lot of, a lot of work, mostly on the, influence, on the influencing people side because the technology is there. And now the costs have dropped so much, any size business can take advantage of digital capabilities to grow their business. But you know, change is hard. And we had to win people over with real evidence. Yeah. And that's a good point, right? If you're really trying to change something, then, then evidence is a lot harder to argue against than, uh, than feelings, that's for sure. So, Amy, now you are an investor, advisor, a board member for smaller businesses. When you think back through your career and that difference between career one and career two, as you describe it, are there certain pieces of advice you find yourself giving time and time again to those small business owners or founders? Yeah, well, clearly one of the most important pieces of advice that I give is, is to listen. Really listen to get, it, get out with your customers in the environment that makes them feel comfortable and build your active listening skills. It's the beginning point for identifying opportunities that can help you grow your business. It's the point where you can validate if you're on the right track and really get your customers involved in um, iteratively improving on, on what, you're, what you're delivering to them. 
The second is to really, you know, really articulate for yourself what your North Star is for your business. So what's your vision of where you want to head? And, and then making sure that your, your team, your employees, your vendors, um, you know, whoever constitutes your team writ large understands your vision and they're bought into it and then are getting the direction from you and your leadership if your organization goes beyond you and you've got a leadership team um, or the influencers in your organization, that everybody else is getting direction consistently on what do they need to do? How should they be making decisions? How should they be behaving to help you move towards your North Star? Whatever, whatever that is. Um, I think we overlook how important it is sometimes to work with our employees and our vendors and partners to make sure they're really aligned with where you want to head and they're translating their understanding into whatever it is they're doing to help you. You know, we do focus a lot on customers and maybe sometimes take for granted that all of our employees know what's going on, but, mm. but make that effort and it will really help. Mm. That's very interesting to know. Okay, so a little, little bit of word association to wrap up. Mm -hmm. All right, let's give this a try. Marketing. Misunderstood. Oh, why? <laughs> because people think it's, you know, I've been a marketer my whole career, and I always say, I say to my friends sometimes, well, it could be worse. We could be HR. <laughs> marketing is not just advertising and sponsorships and putting your logo on golf balls and t-shirts. It's, um, it's really the set of disciplines that help you understand what the people you want to do business with need and then delivering it to them better and more effectively than anybody else. To me, that's marketing. Mm, then it is very misunderstood for sure. Okay. Next one. Entrepreneur. Someone who goes after unmet market needs and is able to make them real. I think the making it real is key, right? There's the old expression of uh, ideas are cheap and everybody ideas has are idea. the, ideas are the easy part. It's the execution. I think successful entrepreneurs are those who are able to provide the leadership and foresight to execute. You know, it's interesting. I, uh, I learned something from my own, uh, my own mom years ago when we sold our last ad tech company. She had been a successful businesswoman herself. And when she sold up for her retirement, the number of people that told her, oh, you're so lucky. You're so lucky that you can sell this business and do this. And I was amazed. I got exactly the same thing when we sold. People came along and said, oh, you're, you're so lucky. It's like, really? It didn't feel lucky. It felt like a lot of years of tears and sweat and blood and stress and anxiety and fighting, fighting, fighting. It certainly didn't sound like luck. And I think that's, I think that's the key bit. A lot of people who perhaps haven't taken that leap yet misunderstand. It's the execution, not the idea. It is. And I think there's actually been studies sort of disproving that luck has is sort of seen as, as playing a disproportionately larger role than it really does mm. in the success of innovation. And it really does come down to its execution, it's hard work, it's risk-taking. It's just, it's, it's hard work, a lot mm. of grit. There used to be a great book, I've looked for it many times since, and it's out of publication. It was called Smart Look, and it featured, who is now Sir Richard Branson, and uh, another guy who created Amstrad in, uh, in the UK. 
And Smart Look really focused on that idea of every one of those people could be said to have been lucky, but something of a lucky opportunity came and presented itself to them, and then they put in the hard work to capitalize on it. And I think that's fair to say, right? Like, I was fortunate in that I was born at a time where I got access to computers at a young age, and therefore I was comfortable with technology to go off and do some of the things I did. Certainly, you could say, well, you were lucky for that. I think that's a good example of smart luck, right? Something presents itself, and, and then you take advantage. But it's the taking advantage of it. It's that you see the opportunity and you make the connection to something that you want to do that can be helpful and, and to you fulfilling, you know, your personal vision, a financial goal, a goal of helping people, whatever. So I think it's the it's the people who seize the opportunity and then work it. That's not the luck part. No. No, it doesn't feel that way. All right, two more. Innovation. Innovation, viable new solutions that meet the real needs that real people have. Also misunderstood, frequently confused with cool stuff. (laughs) Right. Back to the solutions waiting for a problem. And then for some of our audience, you know, they're in a business where they've either taken investment or are thinking about taking investment. and, And one of the the trend certainly of the last two decades has been the venture capitalism route for that. So is our final word association VC or, or venture capitalist? Yeah, I think needs to rethink. Mm. Any particular, any particular area that you think? I think you look at some of the, you know, headline com- VC funded companies of the last year, the WeWorks, the Ubers, mm the world and you realize that the, you know, what I admire about VCs is their maniacal focus and their risk-taking capacity. I think those are incredible strengths, but, you know, any strength to an extreme can become a weakness. And I think the maniacal focus on creating returns for their investors, sometimes, you know, breaking a lot of glass in terms of community, society, um, other stakeholder impact is something that, that I think more and more, you know, early stage investors are starting to give thought to. And hopefully that's something that will become, a, that the sector will more broadly acknowledge. I think you can generate phenomenal returns and, and maybe break a little less glass. That's interesting. So I would agree with that. I think there's a lot of businesses where I would like to see less press releases celebrating venture capitalist investment. I think there are, there's certainly some businesses that can't be done without access to significant amounts of capital. I mean, it's, it's a lazy analogy, but I mean, let's think of, you know, SpaceX, for instance. That's not something that you could do, you know, starting off in your bedroom and and building up bit by bit the revenue. You know, that's clearly a business that required a lot of investment. But I think it has led a generation of business owners think that getting the VC money is something to be celebrated and is almost the goal. And the press release going out is not sometimes doesn't feel like the springboard and instead almost feels like the end point. Right. And, and the fact is, you know, and I've seen this as, as an angel investor. I mean, first of all, I'm very principled about who I will invest in. You know, founders 
who seem who have the backbone to to run the gauntlet because bringing a company to life from early stage is definitely involves running a gauntlet, but also who are solving real market problems. Mm. Uh, the world is full of big problems that really need solutions. And so I just favor those kinds of investments. It's just my way of making a difference with, with my capital. I think also to your comment about celebrating, yeah, it's great if a you know, um, Sand Hill Road investor gives you a bunch of money and that's an incredible vote of confidence but beware of the trade-offs and the price you are paying for that money in terms of the demands that will be made on you and the kinds of decisions that you may make differently to meet the timelines and the expectations to build your business. Yeah. So I mean, if you take money from anybody and you, you, know, you give up a certain amount of control and just understand those trade-offs and understand the expectations of the investors you're taking on and what they really want to accomplish by when and are you philosophically on the same page in terms of the goals for the business. I think that's really important. That connects back to one of your points earlier as well about making sure your vendors and your team are on the same page. I've had investors in businesses where they were quite distant and they were nothing but the money and weren't really connected. And they felt certainly apart from the cash, sometimes a detriment rather than a positive. And then others who were really aligned and very focused on it and, and were therefore a huge help. So perhaps that's another great takeaway of, of making sure you're, you're ideally taking money from people who are, are very much aligned with what you're trying to do. Yeah, one of the angel fund managers who I'm very close to, he's this John, a guy named Jonathan Hukakian at a fund called Soundboard Angel Fund. He says he's amazed at how little due diligence mm. founders do on their investors. Mm. So investors do a lot of due diligence on a company before they write a check. But found, he said founders, that's one of his top recommendations when he goes out speaking, that founders should really, do, should really do due diligence on their investors and understand what they're about and feel comfortable that their alignment is there. Right. That's a great point. Amy, as always, it's been an absolute pleasure. Will you tell our audience again the name of your, uh, your book and what you're up to? Sure. So um, Amy Radin, I'm an independent executive and advisor to startups, uh, family-owned businesses, and uh, large companies. My book is called The Changemaker's Playbook, How to Seek, Seed, and Scale Innovation in Any Company. You can find it at Amazon. And please also take a moment to visit my website, amyradin.com. That's A-M-Y-R-A-D-I-N.com. You can sign up for my free e-letter, which is never a sales pitch, always content, and look at, at the other content and learn more about me. So thanks very much for having me, Dax. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Amy. And to our audience, thank you for watching and thank you for listening. As always, you can find more about us at meetfireside.com and you can subscribe to watch more of these videos on our site or on all the usual podcast channels. This has been S'mores by Fireside. Thank you for listening.